Thank you for joining Talks News for this special broadcast. Originally meant for Thursdays. Oh. Oh, that wasn't supposed to happen. Pardon the technical to the full. Haha. Welcome to Talks News, the most professional podcast ever to be born from the depths of the abyss. It's your host, the wacko weirdo, rebel scum, Jedi hero. Yeah, I said it. And this episode was originally supposed to come out Thursdays. As part of the Theory Thursday Wednesdays, where we go over literature. We loiter around in some sweet, sweet, sweet literature and as planned i have homo sapiens a brief history of humankind by yuval noah harari and today is beginning in part one which he calls the cognitive revolution chapter one an animal of no significance oh yeah grab my highlighted book here go grab a copy I think it's like 15 bucks now. Came out in 2015. And uh, apparently Bill Gates and Obama have read this book. So how well they're informed on all of this uh, is telling. Is telling. And you'll understand as we get further in. John Kerry also read this. But uh, there's a lot of important information in this. So if Obama and Bill Gates are read up on it, I think you should be too. So I'm going to begin with just a few paragraphs here from Yuval. And it says, About 13.5 billion years ago, matter, energy, time, and space came into being in what is known as the Big Bang. The story of these fundamental features of our universe is called physics. About 300,000 years after their appearance, matter and energy started to coalesce into complex structures called atoms, which then combined into molecules. The story of atoms, molecules, and their interactions is called chemistry. About 3.8 billion years ago, on a planet called Earth, certain molecules combined to form particularly large and intricate structures called organisms. The story of organisms is called biology. About 70,000 years ago, organisms belonging to the species Homo sapiens started to form even more elaborate structures called cultures. The subsequent development of these human cultures is called history. Three important revolutions shaped the course of history. The cognitive revolution kickstarted history about 70,000 years ago. The agricultural revolution sped it up about 12,000 years ago. The scientific revolution, which got underway only 500 years ago, may well end history and start something completely different. This book tells the story of how these three revolutions have affected humans and their fellow organisms. 2.5 million years ago, animals first appeared on Earth. On a hike in East Africa 2 million years ago, you might well have encountered a familiar cast of human characters. Anxious mothers cuddling their babies in clutches of carefree children playing in the mud. Temperamental youths chafing against the dictates of society and weary elders who just wanted to be left in peace. Chest-thumping machos trying to impress the local beauty and wise old matriarchs who had already seen it all. These archaic humans loved, played, formed close relationships, and competed for status and power. But so did chimpanzees, baboons, and elephants. 
There was nothing special about humans. Nobody, least of all humans themselves, had any inkling that their descendants would one day walk on the moon, split the atom, fathom the genetic code, and write history books. The most important thing to know about prehistoric humans is that they were insignificant animals with no more impact on their environment than gorillas, fireflies, or jellyfish. So, biologists classify organisms into species. Animals belong to the same species if they tend to mate together. Horses and donkeys have a common ancestor but show little sexual interest toward one another. But they will mate if they are induced to do so. As an example, horses and donkeys are sometimes induced to mate, and their offsprings are mules, who actually come out sterile, so mules cannot procreate. It is up to the crossbreeding of horses and donkeys for that to come about. Mutations in donkey DNA can therefore never cross over to horses or vi vice versa. The two types of animals are consequently considered two distinct species moving along separate evolutionary paths. By contrast, a bulldog and a spaniel may look very different, but they are members of the same species, sharing the same DNA pool. They will happily mate and their puppies will grow up to pair off with other dogs and produce more puppies. The plural word for genus being... Uh, sorry, I skipped ahead there. Yuval Noah Harari gives us some biological terms here for us to move forward. And that is where the term genus comes in. The term refers to the species that have evolved from a common ancestor. Yuval gives the example of lions, tigers, and jaguars as belonging to the Panthera genus. The scientific term for lions is Panthera leo, as Homo sapiens is for humans. Sapiens being Latin for wise, and homo meaning man. The plural word for genus, being genera, groups species into families, such as cats, that include lions, cheetahs, and house cats, and dogs, which include wolves, foxes, and jackals. All members of a genera family trace their lineage back to a founding matriarch or patriarch, all cats, for example, from the smallest house kitten to the most ferocious lion, share a common feline ancestor who lived about 25 million years ago. Homo sapiens long preferred to view itself as set apart from animals, an orphan bereft of family, lacking siblings or cousins, and most importantly, without parents. But that's just not the case. Like it or not, we are members of a large and particularly noisy family called the Great Apes. Our closest living relatives include chimpanzees, gorillas, and orangutans. The chimpanzees are the closest. Just six million years ago, a single female ape had two daughters. One became the ancestor of all chimpanzees. The other is our own grandmother. Now the next section is called Skeletons in the Closet. We are used to thinking about ourselves as the only humans because for the last 10,000 years, our species has indeed been the only human species around. Yet the real meaning of the word human is an animal belonging to the genus Homo. And there used to be many other species of this genus besides Homo sapiens. Moreover, as we shall see in the last chapter of the book, in the not so distant future, we might again have to contend with non-sapien humans. Humans first evolved in East Africa 
about 2.5 million years ago from an earlier genus of apes called Australopithecus, which means southern ape. About 2 million years ago, some of these archaic men and women left their homeland to journey through and settle vast areas of North Africa, Europe, and Asia. Since survival in the snowy forests of northern Europe required different traits than those needed to stay alive in Indonesia's streaming jungles, steaming jungles, human populations evolved in different directions. The result was several distinct species to each of which scientists have assigned a pompous Latin name. And he goes on to explain, humans in Europe and Western Asia evolved into Homo neanderthalensis. Let me say that again, neanderthalensis, jeez. As you can tell, I am not a scientist. Neanderthalensis, or commonly known as Neanderthals. More Eastern regions were populated by Homo erectus, meaning upright man. On an island in In Indonesia lived Homo soloensis, meaning man from the Solo Valley. And then we have here, on another Indonesian island, the small island of Flores, archaic humans underwent a process of dwarfing. Humans first reached Flores when the sea level was exceptionally low, and the island was easily access accessible from the mainland. When the seas rose again, some people were trapped on the island, which was poor in resources. Big people, who needed a lot of food, died first. Smaller fellows survived much better. Over the generations, the people of Flores became dwarves. This unique species, known by scientists as Homo florensiensis, reached a maximum height of only 3.5 feet and weighed no more than 55 pounds. They were nevertheless able to produce stone tools and even managed occasionally to hunt down some of the island's elephants. Though to be fair, the elephants were a dwarf species as well. In 2010, a fo fossilized finger bone in a Denisova cave led to the discovery of Homo Denisova. Yuval points to a common fallacy that envisions having a straight line of descent, that there was only one human species existing at a time. The truth is that two million years ago, up until about 10,000 years ago, Earth was home to several human species, much like the various genera families we see from other animals today. Yuval says, our current exclusivity is what is peculiar. While these humans were evolving in Europe, and Asia, evolution in East Africa did not stop. The cradle of humanity continued to nurture numerous new species, such as Homo rudolfensis. Rudolf and yeah, this is going great. My my science is so peak. I'm so peak. Rudolfensis, Homo rudolfensis, meaning man from Lake Rudolph. Homo ergaster, meaning working man, and eventually our own species which we've immodestly called Homo sapiens, which again means wise man. The members of some of these species were massive and others were dwarves. Some were fearsome hunters and others meek plant gatherers. Some lived only on a single island, while many roamed over continents. But all of them belonged to the genus Homo. They were all human beings. In the next section, we have the cost of thinking. Despite their many differences, all human species share several differing characteristics. Most notably, humans have extraordinarily large brains compared to other animals. 
Mammals weighing 130 pounds have an average brain size of 12 cubic inches. The earliest men and women, 2.5 million years ago, had brains of about 36 cubic inches. Modern sapiens sport a brain averaging 73 to 85 cubic inches. Neanderthal brains were even bigger. That evolution should select for larger brains may seem to us like, well, a no-brainer. We are so enamored of our high intelligence that we assume that when it comes to cerebral power, more must be better. But if that were the case, the feline family would also have produced cats who could do calculus, and frogs would by now have launched their own space program. Why are giant brains so rare in the animal kingdom? The fact is that a jumbo brain is a jumbo drain on the body. It's not easy to carry around, especially when encased inside a massive skull. It's even harder to fuel. In Homo sapiens, the brain accounts for about 2-3% of total body weight, but it consumes 25% of the body's energy when the body is at rest. By comparison, the brains of other apes require only 8% of rest time energy. Archaic humans paid for their large brains in two ways. Firstly, they spent more time in search of food. Secondly, their muscles atrophied. Like a government diverting money from defense to education, humans diverted energy from biceps to neurons. It's hardly a foregone conclusion that this is a good strategy for survival on the savanna. A chimpanzee can't win an argument with a homo sapien, but the ape can rip the man apart like a rag doll. What then drove forward the evolution of the massive human brain during those two million years? Frankly, we don't know. The more things these hands could do, the more successful their owners were. So evolution, oh, so evolutionary pressure brought about an increasing concentration of nerves and finely tuned muscles in the palms and fingers. As a result, humans can perform very intricate tasks with their hands. Today, our big brains have big payoffs, such as the variety of technologies we produce and use, but in our two million years of existence, those technologies are only recent phenomenons. The first evidence of tool production dates from about 2.5 million years ago, and the manufacture and use of tools are the criteria by which archaeologists recognize ancient humans. Yet walking upright has its downside. Humankind paid for its lofty vision and industrious hands with backaches and stiff necks. Women paid extra. An upright gait required narrow hips constricting the birth canal, and this is just when babies' heads were getting bigger and bigger. Death and childbirth became a major hazard for human females. Women who gave birth earlier, when the infant's brain and head were still relatively small and supple, fared better and lived to have more children. Natural selection consequently favored earlier births. A colt can uh, trot shortly after birth. A kitten leaves its mother to forage on its own when it is just a few weeks old. Human babies are helpless, dependent for many years on their elders for sustenance, protection, and education. This fact has contributed greatly both to humankind's extraordinary social abilities and to its unique social problems. Lone mothers who could hardly forage enough food for their offspring and themselves with needy children in tow. Raising children required constant help from other family members and neighbors. It takes a tribe to raise a human. 
Evolution thus favored those capable of forming strong social ties. In addition, since humans are born underdeveloped, they can be educated and socialized to a far greater extent than any other animal. Most mammals emerge from the womb like glazed earthenware emerging from a kiln. Any attempt at remolding will only scratch or break them. Humans emerge from the womb like molten glass from a furnace. They can be spun, stretched, and shaped with a surprising degree of freedom. This is why today we can educate our children to become Christian or Buddhist, capitalist or socialist, warlike or peace-loving. Yuval highlighted walking upright as a significant human trait that helped us look for game and enemies while freeing our arms and hands to throw stones and send signals. Even with these advantages, humans were still not much different from the rest of the animal kingdom. Still. Now, thus, humans who lived a million years ago, despite their big brains and sharp stone tools, dwelt in constant fear of predators, rarely hunted large game, and subsisted mainly by living or by gathering plants, scooping up insects, stalking small animals, and eating the carrion left behind by other more powerful carnivores. One of the most common uses of early stone tools was to crack open bones in order to get to the marrow. Some researchers believe this was our original niche. Just as woodpeckers specialize in extracting insects from the trunks of trees, the first humans specialized in extracting marrow from bones. But why marrow? Well, suppose you observe a pride of lions take down and devour a giraffe. You wait patiently until they're done. But it's still not your turn because, first, the hyenas and jackals and you don't dare interfere with them. Then you scavenge the leftovers. Only then would you and your band dare to approach the carcass, look cautiously left and right, and dig into the edible tissue that remained. This is a key to understanding how our history and psychology. Genus homo's position uh, let me restart that one. The genus homo's position in the food chain was until quite recently, solidly in the middle. For millions of years, humans hunted smaller creatures and gathered what they could, all the while being hunted by larger predators. It was only 400,000 years ago that several species of man began to hunt large game on a regular basis, and only in the last 100,000 years with the rise of Homo sapiens that man jumped to the top of the food chain. That spectacular leap from the middle to the top had enormous consequences. Other animals at the top of the pyramid, such as lions and sharks, evolved into that position very gradually over millions of years. This enabled the ecosystem to develop checks and balances that prevent lions and sharks from wreaking too much havoc. As lions became deadlier, so gazelles evolved to run faster, hyenas to cooperate better, and rhinoceroses to be more bad-tempered. In contrast, humankind ascended to the top so quickly that the ecosystem was not given time to adjust. Moreover, humans themselves failed to adjust. Most top predators of the planet are majestic creatures. Millions of years of do dominion have filled them with self-confidence. Sapiens, by contrast, is more like a banana republic dictator. Having so recently been one of the underdogs of the savanna, we are full of fears and anxieties over our position, which makes us doubly cruel and dangerous. Many historical calamities, from deadly wars to ecological catastrophes, have resulted from this over-hasty jump.
In the next section, a race of cooks. A significant step on the way to the top was the domestication of fire. Some human species may have made occasional use of fires as early as 800,000 years ago. By about 300,000 years ago, Homo erectus, Neanderthals, and the forefathers of Homo sapiens were using fire on a daily basis. Humans now had a dependable source of light and warmth, and a deadly weapon against prowling lions. Not long afterwards, humans may even have started deliberately to torch their neighborhoods. A carefully managed fire could turn impassable, barren thickets into prime grasslands teeming with game. In addition, once the fire died down, Stone Age entrepreneurs could walk through the smoking remains and harvest charcoaled animals, nuts, and tubers. But the best thing fire did was cook. Foods that humans cannot digest in their natural forms, such as wheat, rice, and potatoes, became staples of our diet thanks to cooking. Fire not only changed food's chemistry, it changed its biology as well. Cooking killed germs and parasites that infested food. Humans also had a far easier time chewing and digesting old favorites such as fruits, nuts, insects, and carrion if they were cooked. Whereas chimpanzees spend five hours a day chewing raw food, a single hour suffices for people eating cooked food. The advent of cooking enabled humans to eat more kinds of food to devote less time to eating and to make do with smaller teeth and shorter intestines. Some scholars believe there is a direct link between the advent of cooking the shortening of the human intestinal tract, and the growth of the human brain. Since long intestines and large brains are both massive energy consumers, it's hard to have both. By shortening the intestines and decreasing their energy consumption, cooking inadvertently opened the way to the jumbo brains of Neanderthals and sapiens. Fire also opened the first significant gulf between man and the other animals. The power of almost all animals depends on their bodies the strength of their muscles, the size of their teeth, the breadth of their wings. Though they may harness winds and currents, they are unable to control these natural forces and are always constrained by their physical design. Eagles, for example, identify thermal columns rising from the ground, spread their giant wings, and allow the hot air to lift them upwards. Yet eagles cannot control the location of the columns, and their maximum carrying capacity is strictly proportional to their wings wingspan. When humans domesticated fire, they gained control of an obedient and potentially limitless force. Unlike eagles, humans could choose when and where to ignite a flame, and they were able to exploit fire for any number of tasks. Most importantly, the power of fire was not limited by the form, structure, or strength of the human body. A single woman with a flint or fire stick could burn down an entire forest in a matter of hours. The domestication of fire was a sign of things to come. The next section is Our Brother's Keepers. Despite the benefits of fire, 150,000 years ago humans were still marginal creatures. They could now scare away lions, warm themselves during cold nights, and burn down the occasional forest, yet counting all species together they were still no more than perhaps a million humans living between the Indonesian archipelago and the Iberian Peninsula, a mere blip on the ecological radar. We don't know exactly when and where animals that can be classified as homo sapiens first evolved from some earlier type of humans but most scientists agree that by 150,000 years ago east africa was populated by sapiens that looked just like us if one of them turned up in a modern morgue the local pathologist would notice nothing peculiar thanks to the blessings of fire they had smaller teeth and jaws 
smaller teeth and jaws than their ancestors, whereas they had massive brains equal in size to ours. Scientists also agree that about 70,000 years ago, sapiens from East Africa spread into the Arabian Peninsula, and from there they quickly overran the entire Eurasian landmass. So at some point, you have to ask, well, what happened to all these other hominins? Where did the rest of the Homo genera family go? The interbreeding theory tells a story of attraction, sex, and mingling. As the African immigrants spread around the world, they bred with other human populations, and people today are the outcome of this interbreeding. For example, when sapiens reached the Middle East in Europe, they encountered the, the Neanderthals. These humans were more muscular than sapiens, had larger brains, and were better adapted to cold climates. They used tools and fire, were good hunters, and apparently took care of their sick and infirm. Archaeologists have discovered the bones of Neanderthals who lived for many years with severe physical handicaps, evidence that they were cared for by their relatives. Neanderthals are often depicted in caricatures as the archetypical, brutish, and stupid cave people, but recent evidence has changed their image. According to the interbreeding theory, when sapiens spread into Neanderthal lands, sapiens bred with Neanderthals until the two populations merged. If this is the case, then today's Eurasians are not pure sapiens. They are a mixture of sapiens and Neanderthals. Similarly, when sapiens reached East Asia, they interbred with the local Erectus, so the Chinese and Koreans are a mixture of sapiens and Erectus. The opposing view, called the replacement theory, tells a very different story. One of incompatibility, revulsion, and perhaps even genocide. Even if a Neanderthal Romeo and a Sapien Juliet fell in love, they could not produce fertile children because the genetic gulf separating the two populations was already unbridgeable. The two populations remained completely distinct, and when the Neanderthals died out or were killed off, their genes died with them. So says the replacement theory which would mean that we are all pure sapiens. A lot hinges on this debate. From an evolutionary perspective, 70,000 years is a relatively short interval. If the replacement theory is correct, all living humans have roughly the same genetic baggage and racial distinctions among them are negligible. But if the interbreeding theory is right, there might well be genetic differences between Africans, Europeans, and Asians that go, go back hundreds of thousands of years. This is political dynamite which could provide material for explosive racial theories. In recent decades, the replacement theory has been the common wisdom in the field. It had firmer archaeological backing and was more politically correct. Scientists had no desire to open up the Pandora's box of racism by claiming significant genetic diversity among modern human populations. But that ended in 2010, when the results of a four-year effort to map the Neanderthal genome were published. Geneticists were able to collect enough intact Neanderthal DNA from fossils to make a broad comparison between it and the DNA of a contemporary human. The results stunned the scientific community. It turned out that 1-4% of the unique human DNA of modern populations in the Middle East and Europe is Neanderthal DNA. The results proved that up to 6% of the unique human DNA of modern um, Melanesians and Aboriginal Australians is Denisovan DNA. 
if these results are valid, and it's important to keep in mind that further research is underway and may either reinforce or modify these conclusions, the interbreeders got at least some things right. But that doesn't mean that the replacement theory is completely wrong. How then should we understand the biological relatedness of sapiens, neanderthals, and denisovans? Clearly, they were not completely different species like horses and donkeys. On the other hand, they were not just different populations of the same species like bulldogs and spaniels. Biological reality is not black and white. There are also important gray areas. Every two species that evolved from a common ancestor such as horses and donkeys were at one time just two populations of the same species, like bulldogs and spaniels. There must have been a point when the two populations were already quite different from one another, but still capable on rare occasions of having sex and producing fertile offspring. Then another mutation severed this last connecting thread, and they went their separate evolutionary ways. It seems that about 50,000 years ago, sapiens, neanderthals, and denisovans were at the borderline point. They were almost, but not quite, entirely separate species. As we shall see in the next chapter, sapiens were already very different from Neanderthals and Denisovans, not only in their genetic code and physical traits, but also in their cognitive and social abilities. Yet it appears it was still just possible, on rare occasions, for a sapien and a Neanderthal to produce a fertile offspring. So the populations did not merge, but a few lucky Neanderthal genes did hitch a ride on the Sapiens Express. But if the Neanderthals and Denisovans and other human species didn't merge with Sapiens, why did they vanish? One possibility is that Homo sapiens drove them to extinction. Imagine a Sapiens band reaching a Balkan valley where Neanderthals had lived for hundreds of thousands of years. The newcomers began to hunt the deer and gather the nuts and berries that were the Neanderthals' traditional staples. Sapiens were more proficient hunters and gatherers thanks to better technology and superior social skills, so they multiplied and spread. The less resourceful Neanderthals found it increasingly difficult to feed themselves. Their population dwindled and they slowly died out, except perhaps for one or two members who joined their sapien neighbors. Another possibility is that competition for resources flared up into violence and genocide. Tolerance is not a sapien's trademark. In modern times, a small difference in skin color, dialect, or religion has been enough to prompt one group of sapiens to set about exterminating another group. Would ancient sapiens have been more tolerant towards an entirely different human species? It may well be that when sapiens encountered Neanderthals, the result was the first and most significant ethnic cleansing campaign in history. Whichever way it happened, the Neanderthals and the other human species pose one of history's great what-ifs. Imagine how things might have turned out had the Neanderthals or Denisovans survived alongside Homo sapiens. What kind of cultures, societies, and political structures would have emerged in a world where several different human species coexisted? How, for example, would religious faiths have unfolded? Would the book of Genesis have declared that Neanderthals descend from Adam and Eve, would Jesus have died for the sins of the Denisovans? And would the Quran have reserved seats in heaven for all righteous humans, whatever their species? Would Neanderthals have been able to serve in the Roman legions or in the sprawling bureaucracy of imperial China? Would the American Declaration of Independence hold as self-evident truth that all members of the genus Homo are created equal? Would Karl Marx have urged workers of all species to unite? 
Over the past 10,000 years, Homo sapiens has grown to so accustomed to being the only human species that it's hard for us to conceive of any other possibility. Our lack of brothers and sisters makes it easier to imagine that we are the epitome of creation and that a chasm separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. When Charles Darwin indicated that Homo sapiens was just another kind of animal, people were outraged. Even today, many refuse to believe it. Had the Neanderthals survived, would we still imagine ourselves to be a creature apart? Perhaps this is exactly why our ancestors wiped out the Neanderthals. They were too familiar to ignore, but too different to tolerate. Whether sapiens are to blame or not, no sooner had they arrived at a new location than the native population became extinct. The last remains of Homo soloensis are dated to about 50,000 years ago. Homo denisova disappeared shortly thereafter. Neanderthals made their exit roughly 30,000 years ago. The last dwarf-like humans vanished from Flores Island about 12,000 years ago. They left behind some bones, stone tools, a few genes in our DNA, and a lot of unanswered questions. They also left, a, left behind us, the Homo sapiens, the last human species. What was the sapien's secret of success? How did we manage to settle so rapidly in so many different and ecologically different habitats? Oh, sorry. In so many distant and ecologically different habitats. How did we push all other human species into oblivion? Why couldn't even the strong, brainy, cold-proof Neanderthals survive our onslaught? The debate continues to rage. The most likely answer is the very thing that makes the debate possible. Homo sapiens conquered the world thanks, above all, to its unique language. And that is going to be this episode's cliffhanger. Next Thursday, for Theory Thursday, we begin with Chapter 2, The Tree of Knowledge. <laughs>